1: Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, November 22nd is just moments away. But before we get into this, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace, not Aerosmith Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Union of, i got to get my copy here. The International Electrical Workers, Local 9, sponsor this program. And uh, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, they're sponsor this, uh, sponsors of this program. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Now, here is where we check to see if the audio works, if we can play the intro. Let's see. All right, we're waiting. Cross your fingers, Ben. All right, here we go. Let's see if it works. Well, that worked. I hear it. That's not the intro. This is what we're looking for. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now.
0: Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) Oh, let's just redo the whole show. (laughs) The
1: show's pretty country sometimes. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio, it is Friday, November 22nd, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, David Ferris is back. I repeat, David Ferris is back. We're talking one-on-one with David Ferris about all things national politics. He's a professor. He's an author. Pretty funny, too. And now your host. Hey, he's kind of funny
0: <laughs> and he's not Sometimes. a professor. Sometimes <laughs> Chicago reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky, David Ferris is indeed an author time to fight dirty. The Democrats can build a lasting majority. Uh, how the Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. David, I read this book, I think about a year ago and I've been talking about it ever since and having you on various shows to talk about it. So welcome back, Goddard. And uh well, good to have you back. Uh, it's an interesting contrast, David, follow me where I'm going to go with this. Uh, earlier, uh, today uh, on a different show, the Fran Spielman show, which I urge everybody to listen to, a podcast uh, produced by uh, uh, Fran Spielman, the ace reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, City Hall reporter. She interviewed Mayor Rahm. Mayor Rahm was in this very room. Uh, he was sitting in that chair next to you. I <laughs> can almost feel it. <laughs> I've told so many people the story that Mayor Rahm was in this room where we do our podcast, and there's everybody pretty much had a joke David about you know exorcism and uh, <laughs> you know fumigation. All right, none of the Rom exorcism. So jokes. I
1: plan to play uh, one of the Rahm clips uh, in the last hour, so I'll play it now, and then I got one more clip that I'll play later on. How
0: about that? All right, we'll do it now, and the reason I'm setting it up this way because I I've, I've sort of uh, put David Ferris into one category in the Democratic Party, the David. Ferris uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And Mayor Rahm I would put in the Mayor Rahm wing of the Democratic Party. And we'll hear Mayor Rahm and we have David Ferris here to comment as well. So which one are you going to play first, D? All
1: right, so uh, Mayor Rahm uh, joined Fran Spielman today. Yes, he was in this studio. That big giant banner was up (laughs) and everything and he's just sitting there doing the, he didn't say anything about
0: About the Ben Jarofsky show.
1: Yeah, he didn't say anything, but uh, he made sure to not talk about uh, local politics, uh, mainly uh, Lori Lightfoot. But uh, he did weigh in with uh, his national thoughts here. Perfect. I I don't think he had a clue. David Ferris was coming in on the show today. Mm
2: -hmm. He probably wouldn't have come if he had known. Yeah, if he had known, you you were going to sit in that seat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we'll hear what he has to say here. First, he weighed in on uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren in 2020.
3: You know, and I just wrote this piece in the Post. I mean, I don't agree with, and I've been up front, about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, you think it's way too left. Beyond it, I just think, look, it's, it's, you're taking risks in the uh, primary that will become liabilities in the general. And it's also, as I wrote in this piece, and this is really what I believe, is it is not true to the Democratic creed. Redistribution economics is not. When you look at our creed, it's about work, responsibility, and opportunity. Social Security and Medicare, payroll tax. That's how they get funded. GI Bill, AmeriCorps under President Clinton, service to country. The earned income tax credit, which is the old negative income tax, is because you worked and we're going to lift earned. you it up. Yes, the key word there, earn. Redistribution, free college, free income, guaranteed income, free healthcare, all, you know, 500 more bucks benefit of a, a greater security around retirement, all are not associated with either work, shared responsibility, equal access to opportunity. And to me if anything Bloomberg or Duvall will do is that what I would call the traditional liberal wing of the party would get a wake-up call because they have been, they, you know, Warren and Sanders have brought their A game to the policy debate. I don't agree with it, but I know I can take hats off to them for bringing their A game. I don't know where the rest of the field has been as it relates to in my view, how to give the type of securities and investments that are essential not only for what I call inclusive growth, which is a strategy that allows the economy to grow and everybody to grow with it.
0: All right. Uh, That, I think, pretty much sums up Rahm's view of the world, Uh, his uh, interesting interpretation of what he calls the uh, democratic creed.
2: Yeah, where is that? I I was was wondering where that's written down. Uh, Because I feel like a creed is usually... In some sort of holy book, right? Or something, and I don't know what he's talking about. I just thought it
1: was an awesome band.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Democratic Creed. Creed, Yeah, it's a (laughs) rock band. (laughs) Rahm Emanuel on bass.
0: But the Democratic Creed, I think it's written down in Rahm's journal. Uh, uh, So let's just assume that it's only written in that Washington Post article he was alluding to. The Democratic uh, Creed essentially uh, is opposed to uh, redistribution, which is his summary of what... Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warden represent. So just in general response to all that.
2: I mean, it's preposterous, right? It's preposterous that the, the idea that the Democratic Party is or should be against redistribution of wealth is nuts, right? I mean, I don't even think that that appeals to the wing of the party that he thinks he's appealing to. And you can tell he's delusional. Sorry, I know he was here, but um, <laughs> you could tell that he's delusional yeah. because he references Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick, who like I have a better chance of being president than these two guys. Do You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're going nowhere. Um, and, I, you know, the fact that he sees those two guys as the saviors of the party at this moment in time um, is just so representative of his career in public life. I mean, if you go back to when he was Obama's chief of staff, um, he was arguing against the Affordable Care Act. He they thought they should not have passed the bill. Mm. He's like, we're gonna get killed in the midterms, don't do it, right? Um, and they, you know, they did get killed in the midterms, but they also got the Affordable Care Act, which we still have. And if we had listened to Rahm and Rom's theory of change, um, we would not have done this really big, important reform of our healthcare system that you know, I think the Democrats are positioning themselves to kind of finish next year or in the years to come. Um, so I, I don't feel like he has a lot of credibility on that because he was on the wrong side of that debate. He was really on the wrong side of the history about that. And I'd ask you, you know, like, how does inclusive, how, how did inclusive growth work out for the city of Chicago um, during his eight years of mayor? I don't think that's the way. I think that's the way it went here. You know, um, my experience of being in Chicago that whole time, the rich got richer. You know, the luxury complexes went up, people got pushed out of the neighborhoods, and I feel like a lot of people didn't feel included in the inclusive growth um, in the way that Rahm Emanuel would would think that they they should be. Um, So I think that he's, you know, I think he's behind the times in terms of where the party center is. I think he's way to the right of the party center. Um, Party center may not be as far left as we would like it to be. Mm -hmm. um, But I think it's moved
0: beyond Rahm Emanuel. Well, the whole notion of uh, uh, dismissing uh, free college, which is really... I'm just absorbing this uh, right now, Dave, because it's the first time I'd heard it. It, So it's literally the first time I heard it. The notion of dismissing free college, why? Why would it, first of all, when he was mayor of the city of Chicago, he bragged about how he had opened up community colleges for Chicago residents uh, who did well in school. So why would be a program he bragged about as mayor be something that you would run away from on a national scale? isn't publicly funded education like a bedrock of American
2: life? It is. And it's a bedrock of the Democratic Party or what the Democratic Party should be. And the, the really funny thing about this is that according to his critique, right, some of these policies are redistributionist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the way that like somebody like Klobuchar wants to address higher education, that is the, that's the redistributive part, right? That's where you're like, we're not going to send rich kids to school or I don't know, we're going to put a tax on them and then we're going to send like... You know, the poor and the middle class kids to school for free, but not the rich kids. Mm-hmm. Right? And so in essence, a, in a you're taking social wealth and you're redistributing it to the, to the poor and the middle classes. Um, and I think that the, the plans that, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are offering um, are, are open to everyone, right? Like if even if that means you have to send rich kids to school for free, you do it. Um, on the same theory that social security is built on, right? Which is that um, if everyone shares in the benefits of this program, even if they don't need them, Right, it builds social solidarity around that, around those programs, and I think actually, this is actually the the really big debate um, inside the Democratic Party that we are actually not having out loud. Um, it's a theoretical debate about like means testing and um, you know h- how do you approach um, getting these programs to to have broad public support, but nobody wants to couch it in those terms, which is really interesting to me. Um, maybe I, you know I'm like expecting to sit back at a Democratic debate and hear like a you know an academic uh, argument about about means testing or something, but. Um, so that, that was my thought. I mean, I I think like his, his critique of of redistributionism does not square with the, with the kinds of programs that he wants to see put into place, which I think are explicitly redistributionist. Like the earned income tax credit is, is redistributionist, right? So, um, I just feel like the center of the party has moved beyond this sort of like, let's do a tax credit here and let's offer some people some tax incentives here. And, um, everybody under a certain income threshold gets to do X, Y, and Z. You know, I feel like younger folks are moving away from that model. Um, obviously Bernie and, and Elizabeth are, are moving away from that model. Um, and I, I, I kind of just think like the world has passed around. By well, and he doesn't get it.
0: I, I would say we'll get to the means testing, uh, point that you were raising, make you take a little deeper dive into that, but let's just, there's just the concept It's hitting me free college. It's not free. Somebody would pay for it. It would be paid for out of publicly raised funds. That's what it's not free. So yes, the idea is that a, a student would not have to pay a tuition, but the public would pay for the college through taxes. And if you have a progressively, uh, if you have progressive taxes, wealthier people will pay more of. The cost, so it's right. not free. The notion that college is free is like saying free school in the city of Chicago or in the town of Wilmette where Ram went to school. Those schools weren't free. No. Taxpayers paid for those schools. Social Security is not free, right?
2: And yeah, we pay for it in taxes. You know, um, so I just, I, I just fundamentally don't. I don't understand what he's getting at. I mean, I do understand. I mean, I understand the, the, the wing of the party that he's from and, and what he's saying. Um, I just don't think that that message has a ton of appeal. Um, and it's, it's always interesting to me that the candidates in the in the sort of the moderate lane offer sort of these attenuated versions of the same thing, right? So like somebody like Klobuchar is like, well, let's do free community college for two years, you know? And it's like, well, okay, <laughs> sure, yeah. fine. But that's free college, right? Yeah. That's college. Community college is college. The word college is in, in the name. Community college, so you're offering free college is not all of it, right? Um, so
0: I, I just, you know... I just don't think that that argument really adds up. All right, uh, go back to what you were. Uh, take a little uh, time to explain what you meant by the means testing. What do you mean by means testing?
2: So means testing is like a, it's like an economics and political science jargon. It just means that a, a government program is only available to if you fall below a certain income threshold. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so you're, you're what is what is being tested is your means um, to 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 do this without government assistance. Right? Um, so Medicaid. Right, it's means tested. Right, like um, not a Medicaid expert, but it's pegged to the federal poverty line, um, and you you're eligible for it up to a certain income level, and you're not eligible for it beyond a certain income level. Mm-hmm. And if you have a memory of filing your taxes last year, there's all kinds of stuff that's means tested. You know, um, where the, I do it through TurboTax. Because I'm an idiot. I can't <laughs> do my taxes myself, obviously. And uh, it's like, do you qualify? You know, like yeah. there's like 100 questions of like, do you qualify for this tax break? Do yeah. you qualify for this tax break? And it's like, nope, 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 nope. Like, I'm doing fine, you know, and so I'm, I'm not eligible for a lot of these things. Um, but that's the idea. There's, there's so much means testing embedded in the tax code mm-hmm. where it's like, you gotta be poor to get this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, uh, I think of it as like a, the governing equivalent of like a mail-in rebate, you know, where you know that a certain number of people just aren't going to do it and so you save your money that way you're like you know the sticker cost of the car is like you know twenty three thousand, um, and um and it's like you're being offered a manufacturer's rebate of 750 dollars. the car manufacturer knows that there's a certain number of people that will never mail the thing in right because they don't care or they don't need the rebate or they forget or they lose the they lose the form in the same way that means testing is like people that are eligible for these benefits often don't understand how to navigate the system to actually get them right and it's very cumbersome um, it's very cumbersome to, to use the government's assistance program. So you have to prove that you're poor. You have to show up. Uh, it's humiliating, right? Like if you use um, snap benefits in a grocery store, you know, it's slow. You got to hold up the whole line. It's like people get embarrassed, right? Um, so there's all these ways that we shame people into not taking advantage of the of the things that the government is offering them. Um, in addition to just like um, the lack of savvy about how to get them. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I think that the one of the stronger arguments that, that Sanders and Warren have is that you just you, know, you remove that layer of bureaucracy from the system? You just offer everybody the same thing, um, and uh, you know I have my own questions about how Medicare for All is actually going to work, like be to be implemented. Like, how does the world look the day before and after this legislation is passed? But that's a debate for a different day, right? We're still having this ideological debate about um, about Medicare, and if, you know my question about Medicare has always been: If we can afford to pay for the healthcare of the oldest and sickest Americans, why can't we afford to do it for, for everybody else? You know, like how does that add up from a, from a social benefit or even a, an expense perspective? Yeah. You know, um, and so anyway, well, the, rambling a little no, bit. No, the
0: um, the issue that Rom raises, and, and it was funny, he talks about how Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren have their A game, uh, and so like that's the bone he throws to them. Like they're articulating their point of view, and now we have to articulate uh, a counter point of view that will win over the public. And the part I think he's missing is that in this particular case, there it's a democratic public. It's not, it's a primary. Right. And I put aside the issue of whether Bernie's uh, rhetoric and Bernie's platform will work in Wisconsin or Michigan better than Hillary Clinton's. We'll put that to the side for the moment. I could tell you right now, Bernie's platform and rhetoric work uh, In the Democratic primary, better than anything Hillary Clinton came up with for Wisconsin and Michigan, Bernie won those states, as I recall. And so... I don't know. I don't know what rhetoric Michael Bloomberg or Deval Patrick or Amy Klobuchar can come up with that could convince Democratic voters in a Democratic primary that they should open up the window and throw out everything they believe in about progressivity and taxes. Again, folks, if you're going to have a college program uh, that is to, no tuition, you're paying through it. You're paying for it through taxes, and you want progressive taxes, so wealthier people pick up a greater share of it. That's what Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are talking about, you know? Yeah, and it's, you know, there's just so many people in
2: the party that are, like, afraid of their own shadow. You know, it's like, let's have the debate that we want to have amongst ourselves right now, and then you deal with it later, you know? And then when general election comes around, maybe you shift a little bit of the rhetoric or you shift the tone or something. Um, But the reality is that Democratic primary voters are in favor of Medicare for all. I think it's something like 70%, Right. Um, and uh, the way that the debate is being driven right now is out of fear. And, the, and there's, there's a lot of fear mongering. I think Elizabeth Warren has borne the brunt of that over the last month. And it's, it's hurt her numbers a bit. But it's just it's just Rahm Emanuel after Rahm Emanuel after Rahm Emanuel. People exactly like him going on TV where they have disproportionate influence um, and scaring people into thinking that she can't win. Um, and scare and, and they're going to do the same thing to Sanders if Sanders takes over second from her or takes you know if he becomes the front runner um, there's a there's a just a, a methodical sort of media driven narrative building that's taking place here that says like Warren is too risky, we can't go with her. we need somebody safe. Like the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, or, you know, or Amy Slobuchar.
0: <laughs> I'm
2: no. sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think he's the same choice. Right? But like, Mayor whatever. Pete
0: gets, he gets pounded on this show. I should just let you know we have lefties. <laughs> and they just, uh, and <laughs> Mayor Pete gets pounded. Uh, it's not just Ron, by the way. Uh, President Obama. Yeah in today's paper gave another speech this is the second time uh in two weeks and every time uh, president obama gives one of these uh little speeches or talks to fundraisers where he says you know lefties are going too far with their talk of a revolution uh you're you're too, too politically correct uh you're too woke uh then all my uh dem friends posted on Facebook as mm-hmm. to say, see, Ben, Pre- even President Obama thinks you're too far left. Right. Mm-hmm. So it it seems like there's a concerted effort by a lot of the the Dems and the Democratic Party uh, to move. Them. But the electorate doesn't want to be moved. No. Um, and I think that we'd be better off just fighting
2: for the principles that we believe in. I mean, something that's always struck me about this debate um, is the assumption that the only people that are persuadable, like the only way to persuade swing voters, is to is to like capitulate to what we think they think, mm-hmm. right? Rather than trying to win them over. So you know the idea that like if you want to win um, the suburbs in, of Milwaukee or something, um, you have to you have to be for the public option instead of Medicare for all as a default, as if we like no. Um, that the suburban voters of uh, uh, you know outside of Milwaukee, that's what they want. Instead of saying like, let's at least set the challenge for ourselves of of getting behind the you know the, the most aggressive progressive legislation that we think can work. Mm-hmm. Let's get behind that legislation. Let's get behind those ideas and sell them to those people, right? Rather than assuming that we're going to lose the argument. Mm-hmm. Before right? and we I think there's a lot of fatalism and pessimism about some of the more you know some of the more lefty ideas in the primary that I'm not really sure is warranted because there is some polling to suggest that people could be won over to these ideas um, if we you know, if we tried hard. Well, enough. I'll
0: put you this, I'll t- talk about polling. You said that Elizabeth Warren was bearing the brunt of it. The reality is if you view Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders as the left uh, sector of the Democratic Party, they're pro- probably at 50% or close to it in most polls. Mm-hmm. So that's the dominant strain in the democratic party and that doesn't even account for the fact uh that many older black voters probably agree ideologically with them but are sticking with joe biden at the moment because he's a familiar face uh and he was barack obama's wingman so i mean if you're gonna just talk about polls david you just well the top, two of the top three frontrunners on any poll that i've seen biden is usually the third i'm not talking about iowa where no the, no yeah. mayor pete's yeah. doing well these days nationwide it's always uh, Warren and Sanders right. and so you so basically rom is telling democratic candidates ignore 50% of the democrats of your own voters of your own voters yeah. it's yeah. i'm like
2: <laughs> no i know and i feel like we lived through 20 years of this you know from the clintons through like a few years ago where it was like well we just got to make these compromises up front like i remember in 2008 just i, I was thinking like the one thing I want more than anything else in this primary is to be pandered to, you know, like somebody in the Republican base. Like I just want people to say the most outrageous things to me, the most outrageous progressive thing. You've got to change it for the general election, fine, right? Um, but I want to be like I want to be. Yes, I am part of the. You base. want to be loved. <laughs> I want to be loved. Show me the love. Say the things. Say the quote. Like say the words that I want to hear, you know. Um, and I think that you know, but Mayor Pete and, and and Rahm and all these guys are from a diff- like, sort of a different generation of American politics. Um, where, where Democrats were, were really afraid of, to be honest, I mean, afraid of expressing their principles
0: because they thought that the country was not with them. Or right. I, I, I'll take it this way. And then we have another Mayor Rom bit to play. Or we'll, I'm going to just take it this way. I've thought a lot about this, and I've come to the conclusion, I'm a little slow sometimes, David, I've come to the conclusion that the whole electability debate is a cloak. And it's a cloak for the fact that uh, the Mayor Roms of the world Disagree with Bernie and they don't want his they're protecting other interests and they don't want his programs so instead this I give Mayor Rob credit this is the first time I've ever heard a uh, a, <laughs> a a Democrat argue that the policies that 50 percent of the party at least want are against the mainstream of the Democratic Party. I've never heard a Democrat articulate that. So he's at least heading in that direction. But in generally, they use it as a cloak. They go, instead of coming out and saying uh, they're against uh, Medicare for all, they'll say, yeah, in a, in a perfect world, I'd give you Medicare for all, but David, come on, be real. Right. They're not, it's not gonna get you elected in Wisconsin. And it's so not inspiring
2: to hear people push policies that they really can't make an affirmative case for, except through fear, you know. Um, it's it's really just not, it's not inspiring to hear Amy Klobuchar be like, look, you know, this is the best we I don't know it's the best we can do. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know. It's like you go to a restaurant, yeah. you go to a restaurant, and you're like, how about the how about the sea bass? And the waiter's like, ah, uh, you know. I can give you some whitefish, you know, <laughs> it'll be okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell the chef that it'll, to make something that's just okay. Is that yeah, good for you? Yeah. you
0: know? <laughs> no like, lobster for you, all yeah, right? Yeah. Don't you, order it. Don't yeah. order it. give you fish sticks. Uh, I like fish sticks, by the way. All right, D, you got, got that? Yeah. Right, we we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll play the rest of the ROM quotes, get uh, David's thoughts on it, and also uh, take the deep dive on the debate and impeachment. we we'll are right back. The Ben Jarofsky
1: Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu
0: slash master's. Hey everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to JeffManuelPianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you people J E F F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. LandCremationOptions.com
1: Commercial break over. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky
0: Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. David Ferris in the studio, Roosevelt University political science professor, author of the book, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. We're analyzing uh, Mayor Rahm's view of the world and how the Democrats can uh, capture the White House uh, and giving you David Ferris's alternative view. We have another clip ready to go, D?
1: Absolutely. We're going to play that clip in moments. So, boy, you... Would really love our live stream chat. You got to get in and talk
0: with these people sometime. Okay, what what, uh, what what's going on there? Uh just a lot of uh, n- not a good things okay. about Rom that they're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> um, <laughs> big surprise. Uh, just uh, the, the, the interesting thing that people Democrats still take advice from Rahm Emanuel. Uh, this is a man who, despite all the enormous advantages he had as the incumbent mayor, chose not to run largely because his policies had turned off and his behavior, his public behavior, had turned off such a large chunk of the, the electorate that it was by far from certain that he could win reelection. So he uh, avoided that embarrassment by not running for reelection. And uh, he, of course, uh, is a Clinton, a former Clinton aide. And we're still dealing with the fallout from Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Uh, I voted for Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. I make I don't try to hide that in any way. David Ferris, I would vote for her again over uh, Donald Trump. But she her policies and the clinton legacy is so widely reviled by so many people who i talk to on an everyday basis who are not only loyal democrats part of the democratic base but are part of the crew that the democrats have to bring in Mm -hmm. and it's like this delusion that the party has that like this legacy is somehow venerable guys if the 2016 election wasn't the wake-up call, yeah. you're never gonna be woken up.
2: It's over, yeah. And uh, you know, I li- just I like to say the world has passed them by. Um, a lot of Democrats, like like Ron Emanuel, are clinging to, you know, their memories of a of a lost world. You know, and that the, the lost world that they remember is one where they could cooperate with Republicans and get legislation passed. Um, and that's I think the, the most fundamental thing that has changed in the last 20, 30 years, is that, that that kind of thing is
0: no longer possible. First of all, that thing was never possible in Rahm's lifetime as a political advisor. It was definitely not possible in the second term of the Clinton years. No. Where they tried to drive Clinton out of office on a sex scandal. It wasn't ever uh, obvious in the Obama years where they literally opposed every initiative Obama made, and they're still trying to destroy Obamacare. So why... It hasn't that hasn't existed since I would argue David Ferris since the 1980s when it was Democrats falling in line to follow a Republican driven ideological uh, orders by Ronald Reagan. It was Democrats falling in line with tax cuts that Ronald Reagan was proposing. I can't recall ever. Correct me if I'm wrong. Republicans falling in line with Democrats, except for that brief moment. A few uh, Everett Dirksen supported uh, the civil rights bill uh, that Johnson proposed that was in the aftermath of John Kennedy being killed. Other than that, that was a long time ago, that was a long time ago. And so I, I, don't, I think they're hearkening back to something that never existed. Actually,
2: Well, I mean, honestly, like pretty much everybody over 45
0: grew up in a political
2: world in which Democrats felt like um, they had to they had to be more like Republicans to win elections. You know, yeah. um, And there actually may have been something to that um, in the in the 80s and in the 90s. Um, I don't really like dispute that Ronald Reagan was extremely popular throughout most of the 80s. Um, and when they lost that third election in a row in, 90, in 1988, um, that's where you get the, you know, the power, the real power of the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. Um, people started calling themselves new Dems and new Democrats. And, um, and that's where Clinton came from. That's, you know, that's the it's a legacy at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may be the case that they, that's that that's the only way the Democrats could win elections in 1992. Well, I don't are. dispute that. It may be, I, I, we could have an argument about it.
0: But it's no longer true. No, I, I don't even think it was true then. I mean, now we're re, relitigating stuff from 1988. But I I remember the 1988 uh, election, and it was very some similar some parallels to now. Dukakis uh, ran away from the left. He center. He positioned himself as a centrist, mm-hmm. a moderate. Uh, and they skewered him. The Republicans skewered him as like this do good liberal. So even though he was running away from the left, they still tagged him as the the Willie Horton ads. Was yeah. So he was linked to the left uh, of the Democratic Party. They race baited him. He lost. Bill Clinton uh, followed that Dukakis playbook. I still say, David Ferris, that Bill Clinton was only elected because Ross Perot was in that race. And so once again, they learned, they got, they lucked out and won. And they concluded that the way to win is to sell out your party's principles.
2: Yeah, I mean... That also makes sense. I mean, I, I do think the 92 election was was highly unusual um, in terms of the history of post-World War II elections in the U.S. in, in the sense that Ross Perot got what, 18% of the vote mm-hmm. nationally. Um, and we don't know, really. There's some dispute about where his votes would have gone. And I've heard people argue both ways. Um, but the reality is that Clinton never had majority support. That is correct. Right? Um, he didn't get a majority in 92. He didn't get a majority in 96. Uh, again, because of Perot. 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 Um, and so, and, and then he happened to be elected at, the t- at a time when we were about to embark on a long, or actually had already embarked on a long economic expansion. Yeah. And so people, you know, he had great ratings. He's very, you know, he's a charming guy, right? Still is. Um, whether, his, whether that tack to the center really ever worked in the way exactly that the DLC wanted it to work, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Because ultimately, the, the sort of the. What we're left with is the policies, you know? Um, and I think more than more than the pose of centrism, I think people have turned against the policies of the, of the 80s and 90s era Democratic Party in the sense that they haven't delivered the, kind that the two things that they have not delivered, right? They have not delivered broad and shared prosperity, um, and they have not delivered less polarized politics. You know? um, because if you're gonna say, let's tack to the center to appeal to Republicans, um, which Democrats have done again and again and again in my lifetime, only to see the Republicans get crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier, okay? Um, the story that, that Obamacare was just um, a Heritage Foundation idea, you know, like it's a right-wing idea, it's not true, okay? Um, but it is true that it, it represented a real sort of compromise with with Republican principles and mm-hmm. that it preserved a private healthcare market um, and it, it preserved a lot of prerogatives for the, for the various stakeholders in, in the healthcare industry. Um, and the Republicans went crazy. I mean, they just, like like they lost their minds. They made sh- they, they made stuff up. Yeah. Remember death panels? Yep. Right? Remember? I mean, do you remember the hysteria <laughs> yeah. of 2009-2010? Yeah. I mean, it, was, it was crazy. Like how 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 nuts Republicans went just because we were debating this, you know, important but fairly, I think in ideological terms, fairly modest reform of our healthcare system and Republicans lost their minds. Okay. So the idea that they're not going to lose their minds again when Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg tries to put a public option through. It's just, it's delusional, right? I don't know how to, how else to describe it at this point in time, that after 20, 30 years of this, that you think that, that moderating your own position is going to get Republicans to come aboard just flies in the face of everything that we know about how partisanship works in America today. Yeah,
0: particularly Republican partisanship, how they play the game. Uh, if you if you want any uh, evidence of that, you just watch the rhetoric coming out of the impeachment hearing. Uh, you got that, Rom? Absolutely.
1: Uh, we're going to play it here in moments here, but I just got to say this live stream chat is on fire. row weighed in. Rosa fan of David Ferris. Rose says, David's a great political thinker. Love it when he's on the show. Yes, I don't know. Oh, Well, then a uh, talk of Howard Dean is going on right now on the live stream chat. <laughs> Howard
0: right. Dean. Oh, no. <laughs> the scream.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Saying he sold, uh Yes, I don't know why Howard sold out, had been a moderate till we pushed him forward. So just went back there. Guys, if, you, if you're listening to this and you want a good political conversation, head over to the live stream. All right. People are uh, weighing in and having a good time. And I think I know why this live stream's fired up. It's these ROM clips, all right. <laughs> we got we got one more Bring to play. It, yeah. Bring it. But yeah. Ram and uh, Fran talked for like forty minutes, okay. And you can find it at the Chicago Sun Times website. Uh, here's a clip of uh, Rahm Emanuel that I picked just for David Ferris. He's talking the 2020 election,
3: and it is the responsibility of the Congress to investigate if whether there's been an, a, a bridge a, a violation of the law, and then holding a president for crimes and misdemeanors accountable. But if it blots out any part of an agenda that deals with health care costs it deals with access to college it deals with investing in America then it's a uh, it's both an asset and a liability the truth for Republicans it for you know a, you know a, a vote it can if you look like all you're doing is helping Donald Trump even when in the face of unbelievable facts and you decide to dismiss this in three weeks with nothing else that will hurt you yeah so if I thought about this uh, I mean if you look at it in and again, everything it doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm framed by 1998 when I worked for Bill Clinton. In a month before the election, the Republicans acted on articles of impeachment. acted on holding an impeachment. That framed the midterm in which for the first time in 100 years, the party in power won seats. It had never happened. And then they pursued it. And it came a tremendous liability. Both in the midterm and uh, after. Um, so my If they overplay their hand on the impeachment in 98, their danger, the Republicans, is underplaying their hand in
0: 2020. All right. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to get your thought. Tremendous liability. I presume when he said tremendous liability, he was talking about a liability uh, to the Democrats. They overplayed their hand. I'm going to tell you right now, the roots of Hillary Clinton's downfall in 2016 were planted in 1998 when the Republicans uh, drove to impeach him. They put it in everyone, everyone's mind what a sleazoid Bill Clinton is, so that when the, the Democrats raised the issue that Donald Trump was a sleazoid, that Donald Trump could hold a press conference with all the women who accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment and including a rape charge. So to say that it was a tremendous liability for the Republicans uh, uh, it, uh, was, is totally erroneous. They worked to the Republicans vanished both in the long term and the short term. The short term was the 2000 presidential election where Al Gore, Bill Clinton's vice president, was so scared of having any kind of identification with Bill Clinton that he put him in the closet and wouldn't let him come out for the whole election, did not win the state of Arkansas, Bill Clinton's home state, lost electoral colleges there, did not win his own home state, Tennessee, lost electoral colleges there, and ultimately lost because they were too chicken to fight in Florida. Uh, And so I would say that as a strategy, it worked out pretty well for the Republicans. What do you think, David Ferris? Every time somebody says this, um, I feel like
2: just like a stupidity angel gets its wings. I mean... (laughs) It's just, it's a misreading of history, you know? Um, Yeah, Republicans lost the 98 midterms. They lost the 98 midterms because Bill Clinton was at 65, 70% popularity, and the the country was booming, okay? They did not lose the midterms because of impeachment. Not only did they not lose the midterms because of impeachment, less than two years later, after that trial was finished, Republicans captured unified control of the federal government in 2000, and they did some terrible things with it. Um, so the idea that impeachment is a, is a liability sometime in the, in the distant future, or even the near-term future, is absurd. Um, and the idea that holding, that holding ongoing hearings um, into wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing or even things that you've made up is a liability is preposterous, okay? Benghazi, the, the 47 Benghazi hearings that Republicans held led to the Clinton email inquiry, um, and that is why Donald Trump is president. And they held Benghazi hearings throughout Barack Obama's second term, and nobody was like, "Oh, I mean, you don't want to be seen having an
0: investigation." Nobody in the Republican Party. Nobody in
2: the uh, Republican yeah. Party was like, "Ooh, guys, if this is a little bit too much." You know, we might lose twenty sixteen <laughs> because of because of you, because uh, uh, what's his name Th- that's long departed from the scene. Um, Chaffetz, Jason Chaffetz is what holding a memory too many- you had, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Trey Gowdy. You know, looks like he's been machine pressed. Um, these guys, you know, they didn't care. Um, they didn't care about the consequences because they knew there would be none. Okay, and they knew that this long fishing expedition that they took on Benghazi actually led to real damage to Hillary Clinton. Um, and I would argue completely agree with you um, that the, that the impeachment of Bill Clinton did major damage to Al Gore in the 2000 presidential election um, for Democrats. You know, um, it's not just that they had, had to hide Bill Clinton; it's that Gore was tainted with the scent of this scandal. You know, um, and it, you know, should he have been impeached and removed from office for for what happened? No. He, should he have been having an affair with his 21-year-old intern? No. Should he have lied, he have lied to the FBI about it? Definitely not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that if Bill Clinton resigned, um, you know, Al Gore would have been an incumbent president in Would have won, Depending on the timing of that resignation, he actually could have, could have been president for like 10 years. Uh, alternate history, right? Um, but the idea that we need to be afraid of our own shadow over impeachment because of something that happened in 98 that's misunderstood. It's amazing to me that Rahm Emanuel was part of those events and still does not understand their implication.
0: Well, I again, I think, I mean, whenever Rom talks, and gives advice, I don't know if he's speaking from his heart or it's part of a larger political calculation. And I would say, again, going back to what I said earlier about electability being as the, the, the issue that they put as a cloak to uh, cover up the fact that they, many of these Democrats are posed, Bernie's platform, Elizabeth Warren's platform. They don't want it to happen. And so, but they realize that their party wants it. So they cloak it with electability. So now the issue of impeachment, Um, somehow or other that gets, I, I do not understand how a Democrat can look at this situation and say, avoiding confrontation with Donald Trump is the best step forward. Explain that to me.
2: I mean, I, I just don't think, I don't see how you could look at the events of the last three months, um, which, have been, which have resulted in an impeachment inquiry, which are going to result in an articles of impeachment. I don't think how you could look at the last three months and say that this has been damaging for Democrats. Okay. Has it ended, you know, has it decisively turned, you know, the, the Trump's base against him or something? No. But I don't think it's hurting Democrats at all. Right? Um, and I've, I've written many times that I think the Democrats should be holding impeachment hearings every week from now until election day, okay? Um, and that, that the way to, to get around um, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is to, is, to, is to pass those, you know, f- pass 50 articles of impeachment, um, you know, three days before the 2020 election, right? Because if, if we wrap it up really quickly right now, all we're doing is we're giving Mitch McConnell the initiative and the opportunity to frame the rest of how this unfolds for the American people. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we keep it in the house, right, we, we go to court to try to get Mulvaney and, and Bolton to testify. Um, we wait that out. While we're waiting that out, um, we have a bunch of hearings about obstruction. You know, while we're waiting that out, we have a bunch of hearings about um, separating children from their parents at the border, which is a crime against humanity that the, the president of the United States has, has, has ordered federal agents um, to, to, to violate um, the Genocide Convention. He's ordered federal agents to to, to violate the Geneva Conventions. Okay. Um, so have hearings about that. I mean, I, frankly, in my mind, as much as I enjoyed the last two weeks of my life, uh, watching politics in the middle of the day, like I have no job or something. You know? um, well, that is your
0: job. It is my job, yeah. but yeah. it was
2: a little bit like pajamas and coffee. And I'm like, <laughs> Just watching my stories. You you know? Know. Uh, and, uh, uh, wouldn't it be, you know, like, and it was very interesting, you know, career foreign service professionals. I think it, it was a very, you know, they created a good narrative. Um, but what, how, how much better would it be to have people testifying against like war crimes that the president ordered at the border, you know, and have people talking about how their children were ripped out of their arms and stuff. You know, like I just think that there's so much more theater that the Democrats could get out of this. That would be incredibly damaging. Well, this president.
0: gets to the uh, the cautious uh, aspect of Democrats and there's this pretense that uh, Obama put out and that Clinton put out and that Rahm's sort of following along that follow me on this one and I'm going to do my best to articulate it that there's a bipartisan spirit that exists in America uh, that where most Americans believe they're not ideologues of one sort or another. Uh, they just want what makes sense and what's right. And um so, they don't want to seem like they're Democratic uh, warriors trying to just beat up on Trump. They want what's fair. And, you know, cl- a- Obama always remember you know that was the rhetoric that got him elected there's no blue America there's uh you know there's no red United States whatever it is there's only the United States uh Clinton talks about in those terms like uh Michelle Obama talked about those when they go low we go high in other words most Americans believe that if you play fair uh you know um that's the way to go they'll support a politician that does that now the map now. This is, gets to one of your favorite themes, David. It seems as though the way the congressional maps are drawn, uh, it favors Democrats who aren't who play along with this ideology. And I think that's what Rahm is talking about. In other words, you want to win where Lauren Underwood won uh, in a swing district like that because the way the map is drawn, you have to pretend as though there is this bipartisanship that exists.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't dispute that there's something to that in terms of like, I do think at least a plurality of Americans would still tell a pollster, um, I believe in bipartisanship, like I want the two parties to work together. They're super turned off by people yelling at each other in D.C. Um, my touchstone for this actually is my own brother, um, who's, who's, who's like, a, like, my brother is the, is the, is the left leaning voter. That I, that I, when I talk to him, I always get really important insights from him, because he's not a political maniac, right? Like he doesn't sit around. I mean, he's not like me, right? He has like a real job. Um, he's an oncologist, uh, and uh, but he, but he follows, you know. And he, I remember um, prior to the debate, before the debate started, he was like into Kamala Harris, okay. Um, and I remember when pa- Kamala Harris like went after Biden in that first debate, mm-hmm. I texted him and I was like, "Jace, man, um, you know your candidate had a great night," and, and he was like, "No, I don't like her anymore." It's like I don't, I don't like it. If she was, she was mean to him, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> okay, he's no, more I mean, liberal. Okay, like he's a liberal. It, yeah. He's a liberal, but he, like, he, described himself as an independent, right? Okay, um, and I think he has occasionally voted for Republicans for certain, like sort of down ballot offices, uh-huh. but he was for Bernie in twenty sixteen. So there's a yeah, no, I know, but there's a lot of people like my brother out there, right? Who are like, who don't see politics through a purely ideological prism. Well,
0: know? why would he be for Bernie?
2: Um, you know. It's a long story for another day. Okay. I, I think it's
0: like, <laughs> put your bar on the
2: couch. Yeah. Um, but, he's, but he's very smart, and he and he has a certain aesthetic of politics that he that he seeks out, and this and the nastiness really really turns him off. And I think there's a lot of people for whom this sort of, like the sort of like they just hear people yell, yelling and arguing with each other, and mm. it's the same. You know, both parties are the same. They hate each other. It's just click it off. I want somebody to tell me. I want somebody to tell me that that. That we can actually overcome this, that we can, that we we can, we can work through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with my brother about many many things in life, but this is this is not one of them. To me, like the story of American history is a story of war um, between like um, selfish racist bastards um, and, and and everyone else. And every period of American history has had a political party and that has been the vehicle for the selfish racist bastards. Um, and right now, that that vehicle is the Republican Party, and the Republican Party needs to be like just fought. And fought and fought. It's a never-ending struggle. They'll never give up. They'll never give in. They're never going to work with us. They're never going to be give us a hug and be like, "You guys were right about Medicare." I'm so sorry. (laughs) Like, you guys were right about racism. Like uh, Colin Kaepernick and Neil, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about that. They just have to be beaten. You know what I mean? But I also also understand um, why you can't necessarily go out and say that in exactly those terms, um, because it, it would turn too many people off. Right? Like, there are too many people who believe in a mythology of bipartisanship and a, and a frankly a mythology of, of the way that politics works in any democratic society. Mm-hmm. Um, there's too many people that believe in that, um, for them to go out and be like, you know, what we should, you know what we should do. You know, we just gotta, you don't have to reach across the aisle when there's no one there, man. You know, like we just gotta get rid of them. Um, so that does not appeal to people. And, and so I understand why you may not want to project an aesthetic of all out war against the Republican party, even in your own primary. Right. Um, I think like, one of Hillary Clinton's worst moments from 2016 was when somebody was like, who, who are your enemies? And she was like, Republicans, Republicans are my enemies. You know, I believe that in my heart, Ben. You know, I do, mm-hmm. but I don't think most people do. I don't, even think, I don't think most Democratic primary voters do. But I think that where the moderates are wrong is they confuse um, that instinct for, for comedy, for, not comedy, but like, you know, for, for bipartisanship. They confuse the instinct for, um, for nice politics, for not nasty politics, with a, with a broad reticence for, for interesting or, or progressive policies, okay. um, And I think you've seen this actually some of the polling of the Democratic primary electorate that has had people on Twitter being like, oh, this is so weird, you know? Like you, you go to uh, voters in Iowa um, and they're like, it's really important to me that we work with the other party. Um, I don't want anything too radical. Also, I want big structural change. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it, it's, you should follow this Twitter account. It's called, um, I think it's called American Voter Bot. And, like, a couple times a day, it just tweets out a profile of, a, of an American voter, you know? And it's like, um, you know, I'm a white Catholic from Wisconsin. Um, I believe that abortion should be illegal in all circumstances, but I've only voted for Democrats in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because the actual profiles of actual American voters are just really, really weird in ways that don't make sense to people who are really invested in in a, in a particular ideological vision of politics, you know? And so there has to be a way to appeal to that sense, uh, you know, to people who are not ideologues and who don't think of themselves mm-hmm. as ideologues, but you still reach out to them and try to convince them that that the progressive policies are the are the best ones.
0: Well, here's the interesting thing about him, listen to what you said and um, not picking on your brother, uh, but view it this way. If a voter like your brother is turned off by the, uh, let's say uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's rhetoric that I'm against Republicans, which when I heard you say that, I was like, oh, that's, I don't remember her saying that, but boy, I wish I, I can get behind that. Yeah, uh, and so they go. Well, I'll vote now for the Republicans. Donald Trump, for since he came down that escalator in 2015, has demonized, vilified marginalized all democrats there's no difference between uh ocasio cortez and amy klobuchar no difference between uh the far left and uh, mayor pete they're all the same and that's they're they they're for they're going to tax you they're going to let criminals in they're not going to protect you so he's unwavering so here's the little trick bag that the democrats are in they're afraid they're gonna lose your brother if they're counterpunch, if they come hard in the Democrats. Republicans think they're gonna pick up your brother if the Democrats right. play like Republicans. So in other words, what you're telling me is that Republicans don't fear any consequence from playing the ball the game hard, from lying, from distorting, from demonizing. But Democrats are always in fear of they're gonna lose your brother.
2: Right. I mean, I have to say, you don't have to worry about my brother. My, I know, I know. I, I'm just using it like a, uh, yeah. a
0: prototype.
2: Um, but I think, you know, some of this, honestly, it just goes back to some of the stuff I wrote about in the book, but it does come back to sort of institutional design, okay? If you look at the 2020 election, have you heard anyone, like, on the face of the earth argue that Donald Trump is going to win the popular vote next year? Like, nobody, right? Nobody. There's not a poll, uh, you know, there hasn't been a poll done in the last two years that suggests that Donald Trump has, like, the, the slightest chance of winning the national popular vote, Okay. Um, and if we had a political system that reflected that reality, okay, if we, if we had a political system that reflected the majority, right, it would be Republicans who were having this chase their own shadow debate about are we too radical or are we not too radical, just like they did after two thousand and twelve, and they ignored their own report, okay. But the reality is we don't have that system, um, and and I think that there's uh, there is a sense to which Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, at least for one more election cycle, are going to have disproportionate impact impact on, on, on the outcome here. Um, and so it is us, it is the Democrats that have to be like, are we too radical? You know, like Mm -hmm. I'd rather just see them get behind the policies and sell them to those people. Um, but I understand that that's not necessarily going to happen, but, but so much of this is produced by the, by the stupid, antiquated, anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian electoral system that we have that invests, um, this seven, eight, nine States with so much importance we in Illinois, everybody in California,
0: everybody in New York gets completely ignored in presidential elections. No one cares what we think, right? Well, we're the pawns. If you ever played chess, we're the pawns. We, we're, and I tell people in Illinois, people in Illinois say, well, I need to vote because the electoral system. I go, no, you gotta vote because we're a pawn. We're only a small part, but we're a part. And so if you don't vote and the Republicans take Illinois, They've taken a pawn. So in a larger chess game, that matters. All right? So you've got to vote. All right? Right. So you're you're not like uh, a rook or something like that. That would be Wisconsin. You're not the queen. That would be what? Michigan? I
2: think the queen is Wisconsin in this
0: scenario. Yes, the queen is Wisconsin. Uh, And so, in fact, my guess is, the entire 2020 election will be waged in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're just going to
2: camp out there. They're just going
0: to uh, because I, I don't know if you saw this during the debate. Uh, the, what's what's old boy's name for? Uh, I love this guy. He's like the geeky guy. Old boy. Uh, w, Andrew Yang. No, 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 not, not not geeky uh, guy. Uh, uh, the the I'm sorry I beat for, your guy. Uh, M S. Oh, that was a good line by Andrew Yang. M S N B C. The reporter who always has the maps. And uh, where's Frank? when I Chris need Hayes? him no 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 Chris this guy is beyond Chris Hayes this guy's really he knows inside politics he knows the like electoral college he's like he wears a I could see his picture in my mind's eye he's the guy that always is explaining the electoral maps and okay. yeah how many anyway whatever his name is there was a break in the debate and he did he laid out this scenario Nate Silver no no, no this guy he's kind of like Nate Silver but he's on TV and he's the one. He's like a weatherman. He stands in front of a map. Only instead of a uh, a map of weather, it's an electoral map of the United States. And he goes, "Hey, if you look at Iowa, they got twenty electoral votes." In night in 2018, <laughs> uh, 2008, they went for Barack Obama. But in two thousand sixteen, Steve
1: Kornacki, Steve Cornacki. who did who said that? Shout out to Dragon Slayer nineteen on the YouTube Dragon stream. Slayer.
0: You are the man. The steak knives have been just sent you in the mail today. You are Dragon Slayer one. You are Dragon Slayer uh, uh, one. So, Steve, yeah, I love this dude. He's like real geeky. He gets into it just like I do. He laid out this scenario where there would be a tie. Did yeah. you see this one, electoral tie? I so mean, it's definitely possible. It's possible yeah. because if uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania go Democrats, which they probably will, uh, that means uh, Wisconsin, if Wisconsin, right, that's unqu- If Wisconsin stays Donnie Trump, uh, it will come down to like these uh, congressional districts. Con- congressional made
2: in Nebraska. Man, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I have a I have a friend uh, I used to play fantasy baseball with, uh, who runs a Speaking website. Speaking of geeks, yeah, I know. I got some pretty geeky habits. Um, I don't have a life. That's my outlet. Okay, yeah, So a good life. I like um, the life. Uh, he runs a website called Two Seventy to, um, to, to Win, and you can go to Two Seventy to Win and you can you can just click on the states and turn them whatever color you want and game out the various scenarios. But yeah, there's definitely a non-zero chance of a 269-269 of a tie. Um, and then each state's
0: congressional delegation gets a vote. Yeah, okay. now, Opaway oh explained that on TV, and I didn't understand that. So do you— House no, delegations. House dele, So in other words, as he explained, my understanding of what what uh, Steve's explained on the TV, all of the congressmen in California would vote. And mm-hmm. but that would only be one vote, correct? So once again, it's like a rigged system. Yeah,
2: the stupid, antiquated system is going to work against us again. Um, so the Democrats don't
0: can't win, even though they have the House by because uh, um, Wyoming would get as many votes as California, correct? Yeah, two correct. I know, listeners I know. out there, I just want you to absorb that. How Sucks. is that even rem-
2: <laughs> so dumb? Our system is so so dumb. Like, and uh, you know, the reverence for the American political framework in this country is so shocking to me. It's like the one thing that I'm not part, not in a partisan sense, but it's like the one thing on the first day of um, intro to American politics that I teach. I'm like, I'm going to try to like, I'm going to try to break your reverence for this system. You know, um, not, I'm not going to try to turn you into a Democrat or Republican or whatever. Um, it's at Roosevelt. So they're all Democrats anyway, yeah. but like, I'm going to try
0: to, I'm going to try to aim for a president a a Democrat. Yes.
2: Yeah, maybe after Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. In fact, she, uh, Big part of the founding of Roosevelt University. Um, so I, I, you know, I, if there's one thing that I accomplish in that class, it's for students to leave the class being a little bit more skeptical about the shape of their institutions and some of the rules that that structure our politics, and that they're not like they were not passed down by God, they were written over candlelight by slaveholders like 300 years ago, um, and it's not working anymore. It's a broken system.
0: Well, this and uh, this is a perfect segue to the impeachment and an article you wrote about the impeachment inquiry. Uh, the notion of reverence in the political system. Uh, one thing I s- sort of admire about Donald Trump, and in heavy emphasis on sorta and admire in quotes, yeah. is the way in which uh, he is completely unafraid to throw out the window any semblance of reverence for anything. Uh, and so, if necessary, like you know, foreign policy—if he wants to reinvent foreign policy on the fly, only to reinvent it the next day—he'll—he'll he'll say uh, the people I'm throwing out—I I'm, I'm overturning the, the wisdom the people put us sent us to the Iraqi war, which is like, oh wow, I could buy that, and then yeah. he just sends soldiers from Syria to uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, like what? Huh? I'm like, Don't follow what he just listen to what he says at that very moment. Yeah. But he is. And he is attacking the reverence in the system by giving the two middle fingers at the entire system, at telling his aides not to respond to subpoenas, ordering them to, to sit out. And that led to something very interesting that you wrote called The Blob, uh, it was, or it was an essay you wrote for The Week, uh, where you were alluding, talking about the, the, the brain trust of American foreign policy, like these bureaucrats that reside in the White House and the State Department uh, who have been participants in foreign policy. Policy decisions forever, and they're now testifying against some of these people are testifying against Donald Trump and these impeachment. And Donald Trump is like trying to rally America against them. That is beyond irony in so many ways. Uh, Yeah, I
2: mean it's it's interesting because you know Trump and his allies have been have been railing about the the so called deep state right since 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 he was elected and how the deep state is out to get him. Deep state is like this. The sort of they always call them unelected bureaucrats, as if there's any other kind. Uh, the unelected bureaucrats and they deep in the bowels of government, who are like you know, working away to bring down the president. Um, and so I think one one interesting thing that's been the result of these impeachment hearings is that um, the American people getting a chance to hear these people talk because most people do not know anyone in the CIA, right? Like most people do not know anyone in the Foreign Service. This is a very niche profession. They're almost all in DC, they're overseas. It's not like there's a branch of the Foreign Service in Chicago where we can go meet nice people from the State Department, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So most people never have any interaction with these folks. And so what they saw on TV were these like very sober-minded, like serious, like really smart people um, who did not, really did not seem to have an ideological animus against the president They were just like, why is the, you know, like, what was happening here? Why, why was the president trying to break the law? Why, why was the president trying to subvert this policy to his own personal ends? And so, to me, just having Fiona Hill out there, and I have a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of disagreements with these people ideologically. Okay, (laughs) Um, and so the, but, but for the people to see them as like, as not like these ranting, raving, like never Trumpers, conspiracy mongers, you know, I think that was was a productive thing. For Democrats, I also think it was a good kind of glimpse for Americans to get into the workings of government. Um, So I actually have thought about the last two weeks as a kind of a seminar, you know, uh, a collective foreign policy seminar that we're all taking together. And there's no exam. Um, There's no exam. But it's like, well, the presidential
0: election is sort of an exam. But anyway, yeah, no,
2: exactly. But the blob refers to, so that was Mm -hmm. a phrase that that, uh, Obama's advisor Ben Rhodes came up with to describe like this amorphous, Pushback that they would get any time that they tried to change the existing direction of American foreign policy, you know. um, And so when they were trying to do the Iran deal, um, the blob, as Rhodes would describe it, it, it's it's like this circular logic. You know, it's like a former uh, assistant secretary of defense uh, in the Bush administration gets a job at the Brookings Institution, and he goes on CNN every night and rails against the Iran deal, right? CNN. Um, influences uh, the the people who are watching it, right? and also elected officials watch these shows and they take their cues from them. Um, And then when they're done being on CNN from the opposition, when the Republicans take power, they go back into the government and they shape policy in in the exact same way that they were taught. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Does it make any sense? Yeah. Mayor Rahm like, yeah. is, is in the middle of that right now yeah. as he's yeah. giving advice uh, to, to Democrats before he goes back in the office somewhere.
2: Yeah. And it's like, you know, they all went to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Or they, you know, they went to American University and they're all like very smart people. I send my students into these schools to, to try to do these things because I think we need good progressive people on the inside of the American government carrying out these policies. Um, but it is a bit rigid in terms of their vision of what foreign policy is. right? And that has been, like you said... The signature foreign policy move of, of President Trump has not been anything like particularly ideologically coherent. It's just <laughs> been him being able to be like, you know what, NATO's kind of <laughs> stupid. Why are we in NATO? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there was an assumption on everyone's part that that the whole American public would recoil, yeah. and be like, no, 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 like we love NATO. Yeah. And it's like actually people don't really care about this stuff at all, at all. Um, and to the extent that they do care about it, they think that we spend too much money on it anyway. There's a, like a the very famous thing in political science where you ask people how much, how much money you think we give as part of the federal budget for foreign aid, okay, which is like less than 1%. But when you ask people, they'll be like 10, 10%, yeah. 15% of our budget, we're just giving away to the, to the checks or you know, to, uh, to, to, have to various countries in Africa. So there's like a wild misperception of how much money we spend on this stuff.
0: I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. No, this I know point, exactly but, where sorry. you're going. So Donald Trump taps into that uh, very successfully. And yeah. it, it, I was speaking of this. It's where Donald Trump's rhetoric, some of it, just a tinge of it, uh, sort of corresponds with, say, Tulsi Gabbard's rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, and it's maybe why she's so popular with some of the same people that love uh, Donald Trump. We're going to take a quick break. And we're going to come right back. We're going to close uh, with David Ferris's uh, prediction or his, his his assessment, which Democratic candidate uh, prospered the most from yesterday's debate. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Ben Jarofsky, take us home. David Ferris, before we head out that door, which Democratic candidate uh, did the best for him or herself uh, in the debate? It's so hard to say. I mean, I think
2: the people that had the best night, from my perspective, um, Kamala Harris, I thought had a great night. Um, I thought she was very effective. I thought Amy Klobuchar had a great night. I'm not sure that they moved the needle very much. Um, I think the person who was a, sort of a newly minted frontrunner in Iowa, um, who, who needed to sort of reintroduce himself to a national audience and convince people that this is plausible, was Pete Buttigieg. Um, and as, as much as I'm, I'm not voting for him and he's not my guy, I, I do think that he benefited from his performance, which was steady. He took the questions about, you know, his lack of support and in, in, in the black community. And he took that head on. Um, he talked about his own background as, uh, you know, as a gay man and how that, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how felicitous it was, but I thought he did pretty well with these questions. Um, and I think that, um, he got enough time that he, he took some time away from Warren and Sanders, who I thought did did great, but I'm also inclined to always think that they do great because I agree with what they're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think when you're watching these debates, you have to be careful to look at at what's transpiring and sort of take off your own sort of blinders about what, you know, what appeals most to you and think Mm -hmm. like, who, who, who's taking momentum out of this debate? I got to be honest. And I got to say that I think that, I think that Pete Buttigieg did pretty well. Um, I certainly didn't do anything to arrest his momentum momentum in Iowa, which is he has to win Iowa to get the nomination. I think he then has to win New Hampshire to win the nomination Uh, because he's going to get clobbered in South Carolina. (laughs) Um, And so I think that he did pretty well. Um, I thought, I thought Harris had a really great night. Actually, she, she had some, some really substantive discussions about childcare policy. Um, um, Cory Booker was really funny at various points. Um, when he was, he was like, I've been a black voter since I was 18, yeah. you know? Um, just, just, just some really nice moments for him. Um, it, it was honestly, I thought it was the best debate we've had so far because there was the least nastiness. The moderators were not trying to get nastiness out of the candidates. Um, there was a, there was substantive exchanges. They were like joking around with each other mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, um, that's the kind of debate. Honestly, that I think the Democratic rank and file wants to see. I um, mean, it's kind of a shame
0: that it took place on a night with it was such a big impeachment hearing. Yeah, I, I don't uh, think people watched it. I would have to go short answer, Cory Booker, because he survived to the next debate. He made that last pitch, and I think he's already uh, made it to the next debate. David Ferris, it's always a blast talking politics with you. Oh, Time to, to fight dirty. Is the name of his book. Uh, I think Mayor Rahm should read that book. Uh, I also want to thank Ramana Hussein uh, for being on the show, as she is on every Friday. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. Oh, yeah, back home in Alton. They call them White Lightning. Keep yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. We won't be here next week, but we got a ton of shows lined up for you to enjoy. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hey, and hats off to the live stream chat room today. You
1: guys were on fire. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarowski shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites chicagosuntimes.com chicagoreader.com and wherever else you download podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3pm Central Time. Once again, chicagosuntimes.com chicagoreader.com and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Yes, we will be gone all next week. Make sure to download our bonus interviews and get a question in while you can now at benny j show at gmail.com send us a question we're going to do a benny A special whatever question it is and like i said earlier trolling encouraged